Welcome to University Hill, located on the campus of the University of British Columbia in beautiful Vancouver. Each week, we gather on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territory of the Musqueam people. We worship, sing, pray, and engage with scripture as we seek to grow in faith and as followers of Jesus. We pray that this podcast of scripture passages and sermons preached will bless your own faith journey. And of course, you're always welcome to join us on Sunday morning. Check out uhill.net for a Zoom link and more information. So reading from the message, Isaiah chapter five, verses one to seven. Looking for a crop of justice. I'll sing a ballad to the one I love, a love ballad about his vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard, a fine, well-placed vineyard. He hoed the soil and pulled the weeds and planted the very best vines. He built out a lookout, built a wine press, a vineyard to be proud of. He looked for a vintage yield of grapes, but for all his pains, he got junk grapes. Now listen to what I am telling you, you who live in Jerusalem and Judah. What do you think is going on between me and my vineyard? Can you think of anything I could have done in my vineyard that I didn't do? When I expected good grapes, why did I get bitter grapes? Well, now let me tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'll tear down its fence and let it go to ruin. I'll knock down the gate and let it be trampled. I'll turn it into a patch of weeds, untended, uncared for. Thistles and thorns will take over. I'll give orders to the clouds. Don't rain on that vineyard ever. Do you get it? The vineyard of God of the angels' armies is the country of Israel. All the men and women of Judah are the garden he was so proud of. He looked for a crop of justice and saw them murdering each other. He looked for a harvest of righteousness and heard only the moans of victims. This is the word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together. God, we give you thanks and praise for the gift of your word, even when it's tough. Uh, we thank you for the faithfulness of your prophets, for the witnesses to your goodness in every generation. And this morning, we pray that you help us to hear your word well, uh, to delight that you're the God who desires to be known. Help us to know you better, that we might make you better known in this world. We ask that you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and minds that they be acceptable in your sight. We pray everything in the name of Jesus, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The last Sunday, uh, I had a chance to go to a service where uh, the Reverend Dr. Carmen Lansdowne, whom some of you will, will be familiar with, was installed as the new moderator of the United Church of Canada. And uh, when she got up to preach, she, she began by uh, talking about her adoptive grandfather, who was a Notre minister and a professor of homiletics, uh, who told her that if she ever stopped being scared to dare to preach the word of God, then it was time to stop preaching. <laughs> It reminded me of the great 20th century theologian, Karl Barth, saying that the one thing a preacher should feel when they step in the pulpit is insufficiency. And I, I have to admit, I'm kind of feeling that today. You know, when I 
when I'm confronted with a passage like today's from Isaiah, uh, these words of the saints ring true. And I mean, it starts off beautifully, right? We're going to hear a love song. How nice. But things go sideways pretty quickly. I don't think this love song would spend very much time on the Billboard Top 100. You know, there, there's an urgency, a downright uh, harshness to what Isaiah has to say to the people of Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms that made up the tribes of God's chosen people. Uh, things are about to be very uncomfortable, to say the least. And you know, truth be told, my kind of tendency and my personality is to zoom in and zero in on that part. Verses five and six, if you're following along in your Bibles, uh, it, it really jumps out. <laughs> now, how do we square all the trampling and, and destruction of what we say so often? That God is love, that God's desire for his creation is good, that God really is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. A fearful thing indeed to stand up and say that what God has knit together so beautifully, God is about to unravel entirely. Now, as you may know, my, my wife Kate is a, an avid crocheter and knitter. Uh, she's been working with yarn since she was a very little girl. I think she learned to crochet at seven. Uh, she makes beautiful things. But I tease her sometimes, you'll be surprised to know. Uh, because i watching over the years, it seems to me that she spends just about as much time taking things apart as putting them together. <laughs> and I think this is pretty common. Maybe you have the same experience as a fellow uh, fiber artist. Uh, but it always seems kind of strange to me, you know, especially since most of the time what she makes looks pretty lovely. You know, I'm not even exactly sure what a drop stitch is, let alone whether I could tell that one's been dropped. Um, but the artists, I can tell. <laughs> And often Kate will get to a point in a project, and although it looks like it's going fine, uh, she won't be pleased. Uh, something won't be quite right. The gauge is off, or the pattern just isn't working out the way she thinks it should. And so the yarn will be pulled. Uh, the work will be undone. It will be balled up and start again. And we were talking before the service. She's made, making me a sweater, uh, which she's been working on since January, because she's on the third time <laughs> making it. Uh, mostly what I see is undoing a lot of work, even though I think it looks pretty good, you know. But she sees a different vision, a desire to honor the material, to make her work as beautiful as possible, even if it costs her. And so perhaps it's no wonder that it was, it was Kate's uh, daily reflections from this week uh, for the Christian Seasons calendar. Uh, if you don't know what this is, uhill.net slash daily, you can get a daily reflection for uh, every day of the year based on the lectionary. And it was her reflections this week that actually kind of helped me to see this passage differently, both to take seriously the urgency of it, the, the danger of this word, but also the beauty and promise, the bigger, the bigger vision. She paid attention to the fact that what we see, first of all, and most and foremost, is, is that the, I'm going to use the word, the vigneron, is that the word, Denton? <laughs> Denton is a wine economist. You should have him over for dinner sometime. <laughs> the vigneron, the guy who takes care of the grapes, uh, um, is a gifted and generous artist. He's good at what he does. He knows what he's doing. There, there's nothing held back for the promise of the vineyard and the wine that it'll produce. Everything is done meticulously, extravagant, no expenses spared, no corners cut. Choice vines are planted in a fertile hill. There's every reason to expect a marvelous harvest. But the harvest is a dead. 
The grapes that grow won't produce anything like the kind of wine envisioned. And the winemaker will not settle for second-rate sludge, that kind of wine that gives me acid reflux just thinking about it. Now, the goal is a perfect vintage, a wine that is life-changingly delicious. And the artist will not be satisfied with anything less. And so the whole project will be dismantled in favor of a new beginning. It's a harsh word that Isaiah, Isaiah speaks to his neighbors. And if we read through the rest of the book, if we know the story, we know he's right. right? He's heard the word of the Lord clearly, and he's dares to preach it, come what may. Jerusalem and Judah but will be uprooted. By this point in the story, Israel's already been taken over by the Assyrian Empire. The people of Judah will be defeated by the Babylonians and carried off into exile. Jerusalem will be raised to the ground, and worse, the temple the sign of God's favor and closeness will be destroyed. will be like the vineyard was never even there. And of course, on this side of things, and again, if you know the story, we also know that all hope is not lost. Destruction is not the way things plan. We, we know there's more. And in some ways, I think that makes it hard to hear this passage well. You know, it's nice not to be overwhelmed, but we also might miss some of the urgency of it. Now, on top of which, we're not the people of Jerusalem and Judah. First of all, and this is first of all a word to those people in that time and place. So it can be easy for us to kind of sidestep the hard stuff. But I believe that the Holy Spirit makes Scripture alive for us in this time, in this place. And I think it's worth leaning into this passage the beautiful stuff and the hard stuff, the hope and the challenge, setting our lives and our culture alongside it, not superimposing what Isaiah says, but, but allowing the word of God, who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, to have its way with our hearts and lives. And I'm happy to start with the good stuff. You know, I love the insight that God does not plant second-rate vineyards. God does not cheap out when it comes to the details. Nothing is held back. No expenses spared in pursuit of a, this beautiful dream. And God knows what God is doing. We may sometimes wonder about that. There are certainly days where I'm not sure what God thinks God is up to. There are days when it's clear that God's thoughts are far above ours. God's ways are far above ours. As far above uh, as the vineyards are over the grapes. But if we take a step back, I think Isaiah's love song starts exactly right. I mean, it reminds me of one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, the beginning of 2 Peter, uh, which is towards the back of the Bible and uh, a ways away from Isaiah, but he says this to the church. Says, God's divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thus he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises so that through them you may escape from the corruption that is in this world because of lust. And I think that's not just sexual impropriety or uh, you know, I think that includes things like greed and power grabbing, self-indulgence, self-absorption. That's what lust is at its root. It's kind of idolatry. We can escape the corruption and become participants in the divine nature. God's divine power has given us everything needed for life and for godliness so that we can escape the brokenness of things and become participants in the divine nature. I think that's amazing. Right? And I love Peter's confidence that God has given us everything 
Nothing held back, no skimping. Everything we need for life and for godliness. Everything we need to participate in the divine nature. By grace, through Jesus, we have all that we need in order to get in on what God is up to in this world. If we are caught up with Jesus, we have access to a power and a presence that we could not muster for ourselves. But more than simply spiritual strength, when we see the world through, through Jesus, we begin to see differently. We start to see everything as grace. Right? The divine power that Peter is talking about it is the same power that formed creation out of the nothing chaos. It's the power that shaped mountains and molehills, butterflies and eagles, every marvelous creature, including us. It's the power that made life where there was no life, created beauty out of blankness, wove together a universe of unending wonder. Now, matter matters to God. <laughs> There's one book I read says, you know, matter matters to God because God created matter and became matter and is redeeming matter. And sometimes we're encouraged to imagine that, that the faith is all and only about uh, things of the spirit. But we're not just given spiritual things in the name of Jesus. Because to participate in the divine nature, and we know this because of Jesus, means getting mixed up with everything around us. And it's, it's not simply to retreat to a mountaintop away from the mess and noise of things, so that's nice sometimes, but mostly it's getting down and dusty, delighting in the world around us, opening our eyes to the everyday wonders that God would show us. In the name and way of Jesus, we know that the divine power isn't just interested in disembodied souls, but in our whole physical life and of all its frailty and beauty. We're talking about the power that made us in God's image. The psalmist says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Each of us an icon. That's the end of the word that's used in Hebrew. An icon of the love that scatters the stars and teems with life. Now, I've talked before about the improbability of us being here at all, right? And, and might as well, you can Google this for yourselves, but might as well be one in a gazillion chance. So it's almost impossible that we would have made it here at all. Like each one of us is a startling miracle. And so is everyone we meet. Not only about you, but I have a hard time remembering that about myself and, and others some days. But it's true. By pure grace, we are when we might not have been. <laughs> it's mind-boggling. It's beautiful. And in the name and way of Jesus, we know that our bodies, these bodies, are made to participate in the divine nature, to show something about what God is about in the world, to love and create and care, to heal and plant and hold and nurture and tend and comfort. God's power has given us this glorious creation, wondrous bodies, countless neighbors, even God's own breath and spirit, all of it pure grace, none of it earth. So we might not be Jerusalem and Judah. <laughs> Our story is not exactly theirs. But we do know something about the extravagance of God's grace. For paying attention, in the name and way of Jesus, we know how far God will go to build a vineyard meant for good and very good wine. And I dare say we know something about taking it all for granted. Now, like the first people that Isaiah spoke to, we have not always produced good fruit. We have used God's uh, excuse me. We have used God's good gifts for ourselves, abusing creation, neglecting our neighbors. 
at turns devaluing ourselves, not thinking highly enough of ourselves, not recognizing that we are vessels of the Holy Spirit, and at other times exalting ourselves far beyond the way we ought to. We've trampled a grace-filled vineyard. And I think that part of what Isaiah, uh, part of what we see in the background of Isaiah's uh, images is a failure of gratitude, right? a failure to take seriously the extravagance of God's grace and generosity. The failure to understand the responsibility of those whom God has gifted and chosen to reveal God's heart for the world. Now, we, we may bristle at the intensity of God's response to that failure, but, but verse 7 is important. Again, if you're following along, uh, God gave the people everything they needed and they squandered it in selfishness and greed and idolatry, not sharing in God's generosity, but trampling each other to grab more for themselves, not loving, intending, and participating in the divine nature that longs for abundant life for all things, but running roughshod over their neighbors, not expecting justice but saw bloodshed, righteousness but heard a cry, or as we heard from the message, he looked for a crop of justice and saw them murdering each other. He looked for a harvest of righteousness and heard only the moans of victims. What was given graciously and freely and wildly and generously has been hoarded and neglected and abused. They haven't used God's good gifts to participate in the divine nature. They've used God's good gifts to make gods of themselves. And that feels dangerously familiar. And I think in the failure of gratitude underlying that is a failure to understand the nature of grace, which is always a danger. Now, on the one hand, grace is something given freely, unearnable. All that we are and have is pure gift. The grapes can do nothing to create the vineyard. And we Christians are bold to say that not only is all that we have and can see and touch and smell and taste a pure gift, but the salvation of our very souls is pure grace. By grace, you are saved through faith, Paul says, so that no one can boast about their moral superiority. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he says in Romans chapter 3, and God has determined that that will not get the last word on us. It's marvelous. It's what allows us to say with absolute confidence that the God who made the heavens and the earth, the Lord of the cosmos, loves us extravagantly, relentlessly. God will chase us even into the grave to have us. Nothing will separate us from God's love. We can't possibly earn that. Nothing we can do can make a claim on God. You know, what God has given is pure grace. The saints have always insisted that grace is opposed to earning. We can't earn it. If we could earn it, it wouldn't be grace. All we can do is receive. But the saints, and I think this is attributed to Richard Foster, but have also said that Grace is not opposed to effort. Right? Grace is opposed to earning, but not effort. In fact, part of God's grace is the invitation to participate in it, in our lives and for the sake of this God-beloved world. There's nothing we can do to earn our way into God's presence or pleasure. That's pure gift. But when we begin to understand the depths of that, we know that it makes a claim on us. To truly receive grace pulls us into something that is out of our control but involves us entirely. Now, as one of my favorite hymns puts it, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. 
story that makes up the context of where Isaiah first preached is not our story. We're not the people of Judah. But Isaiah would tell us that we are every bit as blessed and even more, perhaps, because in the wake of Jesus, his life and death and resurrection and reign, we know how the story ends. God will get God's way. Justice will reign. Righteousness, that way of being in the world that seeks the flourishing of life, will infuse everything. Love will overcome the brokenness and suffering of the world. And Isaiah demands to know if we're using all that we are and have towards that end. Or like at least learning to do. Are we learning to walk in the way of the one who gave everything for love of this world? Are we letting the vineyard on not prune and tend to us? That we can trust in God's grace and mercy and forgiveness, thank heavens, but we must not cheapen it. Now, as though it's been given to us so that we can do whatever we want. We've been given everything, not so that we can do whatever we want, but so that we might participate in the divine nature. A lot of time thinking what that means. <laughs> but we're made for nothing less. We've been given everything we need to participate in the divine nature. We've been given everything so that we might learn in whatever we do, wherever we are, to be agents of the very grace that we've received, to bear fruit that makes a beautiful life. So let's not settle for second rate sludge. Instead, the God, who by the power at work within and around us is able to to do abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. To God be the glory in Christ Jesus and in the church forever and ever. Amen.